Today we move into chapter 2 in our study of Ephesians. So if you have your scripture journal, go ahead and get that out because we're going to be circling a lot today and want you to underline certain things. So this is our third week. And the very first week we looked at the spiritual blessings that are available to all believers that come from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And last week, in the second half of chapter 1, we looked at Paul's prayer report from verses 15 through 23. And we looked at how Paul actually models for us how to pray prayers of praise, prayers of intercession, and prayers of thanksgiving. But today we move into chapter 2. Now remember, I've said from the beginning that Paul is not thinking in verses and chapters. So think of our passage today as directly following what we have been studying the last couple of weeks. Now, it wasn't that long ago that I actually preached on Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, but I want you to stop right now and look up. This is not a repeat, okay? I didn't even examine my notes from when I preached on this back in August and September. And one of the main reasons I didn't is to, to show you and model for you that every time you open up God's word, he brings a freshness to it. So this is a passage that is one of our core values. It goes with our core value of believe the gospel. But today we are right in the middle of our study of Ephesians. And this is probably one of, if not my favorite New Testament passage that really gives a perfect illustration of the gospel as a whole. And so this morning we're going to look specifically at three concepts or three ideas within this passage. Number one, that humans are spiritually dead. Number two, that God intervenes through Christ. And then number three, that grace initiates good works for God's glory. So let me say it again. Number one, humans are spiritually dead. Number two, God intervenes through Christ. And number three, grace initiates good works for God's glory. As we work our way through these 10 verses, pay very close attention to the tenses of the verbs. You got to go back into your English grammar. I'm going to make an assumption here that everybody at least has a basic understanding of past tense, present tense, and future tense. That's going to be important today as we work our way through this passage. Paul switches the tenses throughout this sermon. Now, if you look at verse 1, you will see how Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Were. Past tense. Now in the English, this comes across as a helping verb. And I'm going to share with you what my sixth grade English teacher taught me about how to remember the helping verbs. Do you remember this? Not a jingle. It's just a basically something I memorized. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been, have, has, had, do, does, did, shall, will, should, could, may, might, must, can, would. Are you impressed? That's all the helping verbs that I learned in sixth grade English. What is the purpose of helping verbs? They go along with the main verb to support the idea of the main verb. So in your English Bibles, were is a helping verb. But guess what it is in the Greek? And I'm about to explain to you why all this matters in a minute. But in the Greek, this is a participle. And a participle is a verbal adjective. 
Stay with me. It's all going to make sense as we go along. But what you need to realize from verse 1 is this is a helping verb or a participle. It is not the main verb that comes out of this passage. So, here we go. Paul is teaching in verse 1 that all human beings are dead. Spiritually speaking, that is. Trespasses and sins, these are basically synonyms that Paul is using to reinforce the concept that, excuse me, I don't know what I just choked on. The spiritual state of all of humanity prior to faith in Christ is one of being dead. Now, there's two groups of people in the room this morning. Those that are in Christ, those that are not in Christ. But the ramifications of this passage are important for both groups of people. Number one, if you're in Christ this morning, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of the gospel story. Just because we're saved by grace through faith does not mean that we just need to forget what Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 3. That at one time, we were spiritually dead. We were dead to sin in our trespasses, living a life that was not pleasing to God. We have been brought from death to life. So these verses 1 through 3 are a reminder of God's grace in our lives if we are in Christ today. We're constantly needing to be made aware of our sin. Constantly needing to repent of our sin. Just because we profess faith in Christ doesn't mean that all of a sudden our life is rosy and we're living in perfect holiness until Jesus returns. That is not the case. So we need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel if we're in Christ. But if we're not in Christ, we most definitely need to be reminded of this passage. Dead people cannot raise themselves back to life. It's impossible. It can't be done. The only one that made it possible was God and his son Jesus. Spiritually speaking, though, none of us on our own can bring ourselves back to life. Dead people are dead. Dead people can't resurrect themselves. So any attempt in our own effort, if we are in fact spiritually dead in Christ, to make ourselves alive in Christ, in our own effort, would be futile. This means that being a good moral person does not bring you from death to life. Going to church on Sunday will not bring you from death to life. Having a good reputation in the community will not bring you from death to life. Giving your money away will not bring you from death to life. All of those things are great. I encourage people to do all of those things. But they will not move you from death to life. Because if you're spiritually dead, somebody else has to come in to bring you to life. Now, Paul goes deeper in this description in verse 2. He says that when people are lost, they follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. Who is this? This is Satan. This is the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, we need to distinguish very clearly what Paul is saying here. Paul is not teaching in this passage that Satan is the one who caused you to sin. That's very important. So, we often hear this phrase, the devil made me do it. That is theologically inaccurate. Go back to Genesis 3. 
The serpent does not take the fruit and shove it in Adam and Eve's mouth. They freely choose to receive it. Now, Satan has a role in tempting us and encouraging us to sin, but ultimately, all humanity is responsible for their own sin. Satan does not make you sin. He tempts you to. He encourages you to. He wants you to do the things that God does does want you to do. He wants you to not do those things. But ultimately, humanity is responsible for sin. Now, the devil made me do it, which we often hear, not accurate theologically. The word for disobedience that is used here in verse 2, you can circle that, it's the Greek word apatheos. Think about it for a moment. That's our English word, apathy. What does this mean? Sin is not just people who blatantly, actively choose to go against the things of God. It is also people who just are noncommittal about the things of God. To just say, I don't really care about God, or I'm just going to have a casual commitment to God or his word. Apathy is just as much of a sin as actively, blatantly participating in evil. And that's where we get that word from in that passage. Verse 3 digs even deeper. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Are you understanding the bleak picture that Paul is painting for us here? Are you seeing how the word of God flies in the face of what the world teaches about who we are at our core We are not good at our core. We should not stay true to ourselves or define happiness according to our own standards or just do whatever makes us happy. That's what the world teaches us we should do. But the Bible is very clear, especially in verses 1 through 3 here, that if left to our own devices, this is our lot. We will carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and ultimately, we will be children of wrath. So he powerfully concludes this section of this chapter, making it very clear that humanity is in a dire situation. But there's good news. Paul did not stop with verse 3. He kept moving. And I want you to circle, underline, Do whatever you have to do at the very beginning of verse 4 when you see that phrase, but God. That's one of the most important phrases in the New Testament. That God did not leave us in the state of verses 1 through 3. He had a plan. And that plan was that God intervened through his son, Jesus Christ. God, being rich in mercy, sends Jesus to live amongst the wicked, the evil, the sons of disobedience. The character of God is one of mercy, love, compassion, and grace. Psalm 103.8 makes it very clear. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is at the core of his being. Now, he's also a God of judgment and a God of wrath, but if we only 
highlight those qualities and ignore what Psalm 103.8 makes very clear and the 505 references in the entire Bible to love, then we have truly missed the heart and the character of who God is. Now, Paul uses love twice in a somewhat strange way to basically make sure that we understand that God is a God of love. It's not just that God has great love, but that great love is the same love that he demonstrates towards humanity. Now, did we deserve that love? Absolutely not. The phrase that argues that is when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So he goes back to a phrase that he had mentioned in verse 1. He's reinforcing at the same time the love of God, but also reinforcing with the church at Ephesus that ultimately, if left to their own devices, they are still dead in their trespasses. It's one thing to be told that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but it's another thing to be told that God loves you even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And isn't that precisely what grace is? Definition of grace, unmerited favor that God shows humanity. Key word being unmerited. Cannot be earned, cannot be achieved, cannot even be strived for. God's grace is a free gift because of the love that he has for humanity. Now, up to verse 5, in all of 1 through 4, going back to our English grammar for a moment, it's all participles, it's all helping verbs, or it's all verbs within dependent clauses. That doesn't mean much to us in English, but in the Greek text, it means a lot. That means that the key point that Paul is trying to communicate in this passage has not even happened yet until you get into verses five and six. And there are three main verbs that essentially make the core or the essence of this passage. So circle the verbs made alive together, raised up with, and seated with. Those occur in verses five and six. This is the crux of the passage. This is what Paul wants us to understand about this. This is what makes the gospel the best news on planet earth. How is it possible that man can be reconciled to God with our condition being described the way it is in verses one through three? And the answer is it's possible because of Jesus. God makes those in Christ alive with Christ, but not simply alive, at the same time raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. There's a parallel here between the life of Christ and our life. God made Jesus alive after he was dead three days. He raised him up. He seated him at the right hand of the Father. And now anyone who is in Christ today, we were once dead in sin he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, and seated us with him one day in the heavenly places. Paul is paralleling the life that Jesus lived and the life that, if we're in Christ, we have lived. Not that we're up to Christ's standard, because we're not, 
But there is a parallel here. And the tense of those verbs in verses 5 and 6, they're past tense. In the Greek, that tense is called the aorist tense. It's basically just the English past tense. What's the significance of the past tense of those verbs? It's communicating to us that it's done. It's accomplished. It has already happened. When God transforms a person's heart, they believe in faith, they repent of sin, it's a done deal. Assuming that true repentance and true faith has happened. And verse 7 indicates the purpose for which God acted in verses 5 and 6. In making us alive, raising us, and seating us with him. What's the purpose for God doing that through Christ? So that. That phrase, so that, indicates purpose to us. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul is clearly communicating now to the believers in Ephesus. How do we know that? Look at the pronoun, toward us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages is a reference to some future time, whether it be the second coming of Christ, whether it be sometime after the second coming of Christ, but in the coming ages, God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Now, last week, we talked about the immeasurable riches of God's power in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, Paul is referencing the immeasurable riches of God's grace. So, in chapter 1, verse 19, we have the immeasurable riches of his power. Chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace. He is an all-powerful God, and he is an all-gracious God. He can be simultaneously both at the same time. Are you becoming, as you read your way through the Bible this year, as we're doing that as a church, and as we're going through these passages in Genesis, are you not becoming more aware of God's grace and mercy in reading all of those passages? Oh my goodness, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leave a lot to desire, don't they? They're lying and saying, that's not my spouse, Jacob is deceiving his father and his brother. There's just disaster after disaster in Genesis up to this point in our readings. And yet God remains faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why does he remain faithful? Because he has to. Because he made a covenant with Abraham. And if God were to abandon that covenant, he would cease to be a God who keeps his promises. He does it precisely because he loved Abraham. Precisely because he loved Isaac and Jacob. Do they deserve his love? No. Do they deserve his grace and mercy? No. And yet God provides it to them anyways. Because that's who he is. So as you continue to read through Genesis in the coming days, I want you to notice God's grace and God's mercy on display in the lives of the patriarch. Now, who receives this grace? The answer is all of those that are in Christ. So at this moment, we have to distinguish between two very different theological terms. Common grace 
and saving grace. If you were to pick up a systematic theology book or any type of Bible dictionary and you were to look up common grace and saving grace, you would realize they are not the same thing. Common grace is all of the benefits, all of the pleasures of this world, all of the grace that God bestows on humanity, those that are both saved and not saved. So, this is where we see evil people in the world that seem to be experiencing blessings on earth. That's God's common grace. God bestows goodness towards evil people in this world and righteous people. God bestows grace on us in the midst of our sin because of his common grace. The fact that we woke up this morning and we weren't immediately obliterated when we made our first sin of the day is a sign of God's common grace. God's common grace is available to all of humanity. God's saving grace, however, is not. God's saving grace is the grace reserved for all of those that are in Christ. It is for those who believe in faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and repent of their sin. If you want to read a great essay on saving grace, you can go to the Gospel Coalition website and just search saving grace. And there's an excellent article that gives you all of this detail and explains more fully the magnificence of this great doctrine. Saving grace is not in the lives of all people. Saving grace is only in the lives of those who have believed in faith and repented of their sin. The author of that essay says this, Grace does not contemplate sinners merely as undeserving, but ill-deserving. It is not simply that we do not deserve grace, we do deserve hell. It's not that grace is merely for the undeserving, but it's for the ill-deserving. And by the way, none of us deserve God's grace. But God wanted to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And so he bestowed it on all of those who believe in faith and repent of their sin. Number three, grace initiates good works for God's glory. Verses 8 through 10, probably the most well-known verses of this passage. You probably know it well. By grace, all that are in Christ are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Don't miss what Paul is teaching here. All that are in Christ are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is not my own doing. Even faith is not up to you. Let me say it again. Even faith is not up to you. You believe in faith because the Spirit of God did a work within your heart. If you're spiritually dead, you can't just decide on your own in your flesh to be made alive again. God has to initiate that work in your life. The mystery of salvation is that God knows who ultimately will repent of their sin and believe in faith and those who will not. 
So the question is, what is man, what is humanity's responsibility in salvation? The answer is to respond. To respond in faith. To believe that when we open the word of God and we read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, to believe it and repent of sin. Salvation is clearly a gift from God. Paul makes clear at the end of verse 8, therefore man must receive that gift to be made right with God. And it has to be received freely. Verse 9 makes it clear that the gift of salvation is not a result of works. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, is faith and repentance then not a good work that makes us right with God? And the answer is no. It is not a good work. It is our response to God working in our hearts. Repentance and faith are what God gives to us to bring us back to life. Let me explain it a little bit better. Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, author, wrote a great little book called The Grace of Repentance. And in that book, he says this. Does this mean that we are forgiven on the basis of our repentance? Not at all. Repentance and faith are both necessary for salvation, but they are related to justification in different ways. Faith alone is the instrument by which Christ is received and rested on as Savior. Justification is by faith, not repentance. But faith, and therefore justification, cannot exist where there is no repentance. Repentance is necessary for salvation by faith as the ankle is to walking. The one does not act apart from the other. I cannot come to Christ in faith without turning from sin in repentance. That's Sinclair Ferguson that says that. The grace of God given to us is what initiates good works for the glory of God. Think about it for a moment. If salvation is... God bestowing his unmerited favor on us, once we accept and believe and receive that grace, we then go out and we exercise and we initiate good works, not out of a sense of obligation or duty, out of a sense of love for the one who bestowed his grace upon us. There is a massive difference between living your life as a way to please God, hoping that in the end you'll be made right with God, or believing in faith and repenting of your sin and receiving that grace, and then going out and doing good works because you were just thrilled that God loved you so much that he would actually save you. So that you want to go in freedom and do good works to please your Father. There's a difference between obligation and duty and pleasing the one who saved you. In other words, if we don't understand that our good works can't save us, then we can't do good works in a way that would please God. The only reason we do good works is because God's grace was initiated in our hearts 
and we want to respond out of love and delight for what God has done for us. That we should walk in them is how Paul finishes up this passage. And that's how that passage began. That we should walk in them in verse 10 is contrasted with all of the walking that takes place in verse 2. In verse 2, we walked in our trespasses, in our sins. But in verse 10, we walk in the good works that God prepared before we were even in existence. And in between those two separate ways of walking is God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love toward sinners. Brothers and sisters, Jesus brings life. That's the good news of the gospel. This passage is very simple. Every human being in this room and in all of life that's ever lived was dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions or the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of God. That's everybody that's ever lived. But verse 4 is important. In fact, it's one of the most important parts of the whole passage. But God, but God, but God being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we were incapable of living, die a gruesome death, raised him from the dead three days later as a sign that God was pleased with the sacrifice that his son made. And so now any who believe in faith that Christ's death was sufficient for their sin and they believe in faith and they repent of their sin, Paul says, They can be made alive with Christ, raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places. That is the good news of the gospel. God, in his grace and mercy through Jesus, made a way for man to be made alive again. This is a gift given to us. A gift given to all of humanity. Receive God's grace today. If you are in this room and you are not saved, receive the free gift of salvation. Believe in faith. Repent of your sin. We have brothers and sisters in this room who will come alongside of you and show you what it means to walk with Jesus. We would love to do that. But you must believe in faith and repent of your sin. We do not believe in this church in what is known as universalism. That's the idea that at the end of life, everyone just dies and goes to heaven. We don't believe that because the Bible doesn't teach that. We have to receive God's unmerited favor towards us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage, for Paul's just wonderful exposition of what actually happens in the story of the gospel. And we have two groups of people in this room today. We have those that are already in Christ. I just pray in the next few minutes we would meditate and think about the goodness of the gospel in our lives and how we were brought from death to life and that we would just give praise to you for doing that. And then for those that are not saved, 
that have not believed in faith and repented of their sin and trusted in the finished work of your son, I pray through your spirit that you would draw them to yourself, that you would move in their midst, and that they would come and receive faith today. We thank you for this passage, the powerful testimony that Paul gives us. Most importantly, we thank you for the gospel, how much it means to us personally, and how it's the only way that somebody can be brought from death to life. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.